Hi, my name is Mandy Jackson Beverly, and I'm a bibliophile. Welcome to the bookshop. Thanks for listening to the Bookshop Podcast. I appreciate the notes I receive saying how much you enjoy the show. Creating a podcast is a lot of work. It takes hours to research guests, edit, produce, and market each episode. Many of you have contacted me wanting to financially support the work I do, so I've made it easy. To donate using PayPal, go to thebookshoppodcast.buzzsprout.com and click on the small blue heart at the top right of the homepage. You can also donate via Patreon. The link is on my website at www.mandyjacksonbeverly.com and click on the Bookshop Podcast. I love what I do, and I believe in keeping the magic of independent bookshops a reality and to support authors everywhere. Now, on with the show. I'm starting off this episode with something a little different. Indie bookshop owner Christopher J. Jarmack is also an author and poet. Not Allowed, published by Moonpath Press, is a collection of 30 years of his poetry. Here's Chris reading his prose poem, Ode to Neighborhood Independent Bookstores. Poets need bookstores, quieter places with spaces for chairs without baristas noisily grinding coffee or rowdy drunks demanding more beer and well drinks. Places where poets can stretch and grow, recite, perform, get ornery, protest, show off, preen, promote, express dangerous ideas, cry or share their passion as an audience listens, ponders ideas, makes connections and absorbs different perspectives. A place where no one is censored, arrested or involuntarily committed to an asylum. We need bookstores where you might run into a neighbor or an acquaintance or a stranger and strike up a conversation, a place you might quickly dash into to pick up something to read or spend hours browsing, dreaming, remembering, forgetting, discovering. On the internet, you can't smell books, thumb through them, feel their weight in your hand. On the internet, you can't read the handwritten comments scribbled into the margins or find a birthday greeting or touch an author's autograph. On the internet, you can't stop on your way to the cash register to investigate a book you've never heard of, pick it up from a table, pull it off the shelf, turn its pages, feel its texture. On the internet, you can't pick up an old friend, a book you once read, nearly forgot, and experience a flood of memories. New books have a couple of smells. Old books have many. My favorite bookstores aren't like hotel gift shops. They don't have perfect lighting and aren't in shopping malls filled with robotic music. Poets need bookstores owned not by a corporation, but by a person who is quirky, not completely polished, older than 22, and loves books, writers, poets, students, and scholars more than money. We need bookstores with old brick walls, concrete floors, a bright red couch that seems to swallow you when you sit in it. We need bookstores with a chess table in the front, miniature rocking chairs, stuffed toys for kids in back, and wooden bookshelves stretching nearly 15 feet to the ceiling, rolling ladders. We need bookstores that aren't taken for granted, forgotten until they fade away like yesterday's headlines, exposed to bright sunshine in the store's glass front window. We all need bookstores with bells above the door announcing our arrival, bells that welcome us home. Thanks, Chris. That was perfect. Welcome to the show. Hello there. Your bookshop, Booktree, is located in Kirkland, Washington State, USA, For our listeners who are all over the world, can you tell us a little about the geography of the city and explain what it means when locals refer to the east side? Ah, okay. Well, King County is where Seattle is, and, you know, everybody can kind of either picture or understand what Seattle is. And it's on the, uh, what we would call the west side of of Lake Washington. On the east side of Lake Washington is like Bellevue and uh, Kirkland and Redmond. And although Redmond isn't actually on Lake Washington, it's a little um, east of here. So it's not right on the border. uh, It's not right on the banks of the uh, Lake Washington. So Kirkland's on the banks of Lake Washington, and it's called the east side. 
And I'm not sure what the current population of Kirkland is, but it's grown in leaps and bounds the past few years because it's a, uh, a Google hub now. There's been lots of uh, development. And of course, some of the people that have been here for a while aren't happy with the development. And uh, some of the um, little cottages and some of the nice little, you know, are, are disappearing really fast. So that's kind of a shame. But there's still some parts of town that are um, uh, ha have a nice feel to them and a little bit older fashioned small town feel, even though it's not really a small town. And it's pretty affluent. And uh, so it's not a cheap place to live or rent, you know, rent or and certainly to buy. I think the average uh, house or a large condo is um, 800,000 to, you know, 1.1 million. So it's pretty crazy. Yeah, it seems with people moving out of the big cities, prices everywhere else are just skyrocketing. But you do live in a gorgeous, gorgeous state. It's horrible up here. It is absolutely terrible up here. Freezing cold. It is sleet, rain, howling winds all the time. Not that I'm trying to discourage anyone from moving here. I think you might be fibbing, Chris, because whenever I've been up there, it's been absolutely gorgeous. You know, I, I grew up on the East Coast in upstate New York, which is very beautiful, but you have the humidity and you have harsh four seasons. I mean, winters can be pretty hard. And uh, out here, uh, everything is pretty mild. We get a few more gray days than some places do. But other than that, you know, rainfall is not ridiculous. And um, we have a few windy days, but a lot of places have windy days. And we don't get very much snow at all. We don't have the humidity. We don't have bugs like a lot of places do. And then we have these green belts and lots of attention is paid to um, nature all over the place. So you have lots of trees and uh, because it is a, uh, you know, it does rain uh, regularly. So it's uh, absolutely beautiful and green and all that kind of stuff. So, And in 1994, you relocated from Los Angeles to the Seattle area. Why the Pacific Northwest? Well, I was visiting up here with my uh, with my favorite ex-wife. I was uh, visiting up here um, on a regular basis, and uh, uh, since '84 or something, my brother was up here. And uh, so, after I started having a family, I didn't want to raise my family in LA, and so I was looking for opportunities to kind of end my um uh, whatever you call my entertainment career and um so i was um uh, producing um uh after i produced some good stuff over at kcet then the rest of my entertainment career was working on uh, wonderful tv shows like hard copy and entertainment tonight and things like that so it was not something that i had to do and um, uh, so I didn't want to raise my kids in L.A. And I love the Seattle area. It has so much of the same uh, fauna and flora as upstate New York does. Um, but it, like I said, it doesn't have the humidity and other stuff. So it's very pretty. And uh, so we moved up here in 94. And I was still able to do some writing from some of my contacts down in L.A. And uh, so um, and I wound up coming up here with a bit of a with an actual job too. And uh, so it was kind of an easy transition. I never thought I would own a bookstore though. And how did that happen? Quick story, I eventually had a, car uh, a career as a financial advisor um, and uh, working for like Morgan Stanley and uh, had that for about eight, eight and a half years, something like that. And then I stopped that and I got into technical writing to make money, which you can make some good money as a technical writer. And uh, although it was difficult in a way, or I could see it would be difficult because um, it, it is exhausting. If you do the job well, it is, it is exhausting. And the other writing that I would like to do, the poetry and the other writing that I do, you know, if the well is dry because I've been using it to do the technical writing, then it's difficult. But if I could manage, th juggle things and manage things, um, I could probably uh, make an okay living as a technical writer and take enough time off to do the stuff that I, I needed to do that was good for my soul. After a few years of doing that and establishing contacts and all that, I um, 
because of my writing life. Um, I have a mystery thriller novel that came out and then I have some poetry books and there's a bookstore in Kirkland uh, that was very nice to me uh, called Park Place Books. So I knew the owners pretty well, Mary and Rebecca, and they were nice about having uh, book events. And eventually I wound up doing a monthly poetry reading for them where I would bring in poets that I knew and we would uh, read and uh, it was open to the public, of course. And uh, so it was kind of a nice, nice gathering. And uh then they were being pushed out by the de- the redevelopment of the of the kind of mall area that they were in. It was a huge development project, and so that was in uh, 2005. They were closing; they were gone. Rebecca decided to retire, but Mary wanted to open up another bookstore. So after about a year, I called Mary, thinking, you know, maybe we need a new poetry series there. So I called her up and said, well, how's the bookstore going? And she said, oh, well, I raised some money. I did this. I did that. But there's always been these things that are happening. I need to find a working partner. And I said, well, I I know somebody that might be interested. And I called a friend of mine and we started talking. And after a little while, he said, you know, I'm not interested in doing that anymore, but why don't you do it? And I said, well, uh, I I guess I could buy myself the worst paying job I ever had in my life. And um, so I uh, talked to uh, Mary about that, and uh, she was happy to teach me the biz and uh, if I really wanted to do it. So I said, well, might as well. So I jumped in and we opened up this place in November of 2016. And then six months later, she had had enough. And so she retired and she had been doing it for over 30 years. And she wanted to move closer to where her uh, kids had relocated. And plus, there was a lot of changes with technology and all that stuff. And so I just had to learn it. She had to unlearn how she used to do things and then relearn the new stuff. So it was much more difficult for her. So here I am and uh, struggling, hanging on, um, you know, it's quite the adventure. And since opening the book tree, have you been able to put any time aside specifically to write? A little bit, not a lot, not, not, not really enough. There are times when I get a little bit frustrated that I don't have the time to, um, to write, but I, uh, there's enough, you know, I carve out a little time here and there and I do enough. Um, it isn't, uh, uh, certainly not working on my, uh, uh, my next great American novel, but I'm managing to uh, work on some poetry and, you know, do things like that. And, I, and I'm somewhat established as a Northwest poet. So people ask me occasionally, uh, you know, I'm putting together an anthology. Could you do something for it? You know, all that stuff. So it makes me feel wonderful to be able to do that. And usually I can juggle things enough to do that. After speaking with writers and artists living in Washington State, I get the feeling the Pacific Northwest nurtures her writers and supports their work. Am I correct in thinking this? And how do you think this is different to other states you've lived in in the U.S.? Well, of course, Los Angeles is such, it doesn't have a complete lack of culture, but it certainly is is challenging in terms of um, there are so many distractions and and all the time in Los Angeles that I think um, even though there is a pretty healthy literary, uh, there's literary clubs and literary groups and there's uh, uh, like uh, for, for poetry and whatever, there's places like Beyond Baroque in Venice and there's, so there's little um, oasises, you know, throughout the Los Angeles area but there isn't quite the connectiveness that there is here in Seattle it's it's just a little more laid back. I wouldn't I wouldn't say it's easier or that different from some of the other places I've been, but it has a more laid back feeling, and uh, that is a little bit more conducive because, of course, a lot of writers are actually pretty introverted, and uh, so we uh, uh, fake it um, that we're not sometimes. And you know, the people that are able to fake it uh, better than some other people are the ones that get out there and can organize things and do things and then pull in some of the ones that are a little bit more reticent to do that. And then, um, and everybody tries to figure out what to do with the, um, 
academics who who have an even harder time to come out to readings and all that. So, and since the pandemic, have you moved your poetry events online? A little bit. There's several people doing enough Zoom stuff that I don't have to do too much of that because there's enough groups and all that. I haven't done too many. Uh, it's just not the same on Zoom as it is in person. I've been invited to read, and you know it's okay um, to 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 read over the Zoom, but um, it, it isn't it isn't quite the same. Do you mean because of the in person connection? The hu- the human connection type thing that. Uh, whether or not you actually hug someone, um, but you feel like, you know, if you're in the room and somebody likes what you're doing, you can, you just know it, you feel it. And then you can sort of get a sense when you're on Zoom, but are you misreading it? Are you reading it correctly? Are you getting the kind of feedback? And then from a bookstore's uh, point of view, um, in, in terms of a bookseller doing this sort of thing, you don't have the immediate, I'd like to buy the book that whole thing is lost. People would then have to arrange to buy the book um, rather than buy the book right from you. So it's a little extra work to do them. And uh, and you don't have the advantage of having either people at the readings or at the store. And uh, for poetry readings, um, you know, there are several poets that have either uh, have self-published or they have books or whatever, and they like to sell them when they're when they're doing them, whether or not it does any good for the bookstore is beside the point. Um, but then for ones that can do good for the bookstore, you don't have that either. And uh, so there's, there's definitely something missing from that. Of course, the advantage is it does open up opportunities in a different way. I participated in one where there were people from not just all over the country, but also in some foreign countries that participated. And so you would never get that, you know, and uh, so that's a wonderful thing. So there's, you know, like like a lot of things, it's good and bad. And a lot of things with technology, you know, that's kind of the way it is. It's both good and there's a good side and a bad side. And a lot of the bookshop owners I've spoken to have said their audiences have become way more global. But what they've done to help sell the books is that there's a small fee to join into the Zoom conversation. And with that fee, you get your book delivered. It's a lot more pre-planning, figuring out sales and distribution of the books. But many of the bookshop owners are saying it's been well worth it. Chris, do you sell new and used books? Yes, we have um, new and gently used books, I call them. Of course, some of them are more than gently used, but but we I'm pretty picky about the condition of the book, unless it's a, a you know sort of a valuable book. Other other than that, it has to look pretty new. And when you're merchandising the store, do you place the new and used books side by side? Well, it just depends. I have. Um, display shelves. Um, So I have what the book clubs are reading, and that's generally new books, and then some of the newer releases, and then just the stuff that I think people should be reading, I guess is the best way to put it. So I try to keep a nice selection of new books that way. And then inside the bookcases that are around the store, most of the things in there are used. And then there are some authors that I carry, mystery writers who have series that we like, you know, that do well with our customers. And for those, we go deep. So we try to have them, pretty much all of them. So from the first one on up, a lot of those are new, but um, most of the ones in the shelves are gently used. And is Booktree affiliated with IndieBound, Bookshop.org, or Libro FM? Nope. I almost did it earlier in the year and then with covid and having some technical issues and all that stuff i had to put a pause on on all that stuff can customers order books online via your website or have them delivered yeah yeah and they can email me and then they can um, order through the email and then uh, a couple of the distributors i can what they call drop ship to customers so that's that makes it pretty easy um, if they're a really good customer, you know, I might figure out a way if if I don't have to drop everything and run to the post office, I might figure out a way, you know, to do it for for a good customer. A local customer. Yeah. And then the uh, curbside 
uh, delivery is certainly available. And there's still people, even though now they can come in the store with a mask and, you know, with precautions and all that. But some people still want to be overly cautious. And so we still do curbside delivery. And we have senior hours for older clients, too, a couple hours a week where it's just senior shopping. That's a great idea. And Chris, is there one book, apart from one of your own, you'd like to see more people reading? Oh, there's not There's not one. There's probably a hundred. Uh, every couple of years, we'd have all Kirkland reads, and we would encourage people to read a particular book. Uh, a few years ago, it was uh, Spare Parts. It's about uh, the school in Arizona that competed to get their robot into the MIT competition. And it's a fascinating book, and there was a documentary and all that. But one of the ones that I would love to see in all Kirkland reads is, and you've heard of it, uh, Cast by um, Isabel Wilkerson. Um, I just think, because, you know, there's, there's a whole subgenre of the uh, anti-racist books, and there's a lot of good ones. And that is not exactly an anti-racist book, but it's sort of in that genre. And it's so well done. Um, she won the Pulitzer Prize for her earlier book, Warmth of Other Sons, the, about immigration. She's so passionate in her writing, and she's such a good writer, and kind of casts a bigger, a bigger net than some of the other books. Uh, and it's important to, to know some of the things and to remember some of the things. And she brings up a lot of uh, historical uh, information and the way she connects the dots and uh, makes it all come alive. And there's a few writers that are really good at that. You're Eric Larson is another uh, guy, he used to be a, a Northwest, uh, you could call him a Northwest writer, but he has since made it really big. And so he bought a condo overlooking Central Park, but we still talk to him, we're still nice to him. So anyway, in his, his latest book, we were all excited about his, his latest book coming out, which was called Splendid in the Vile, which is a wonderful book. And then, then I find out, wait a minute, it's about Churchill? We need another book about Churchill? But it's absolutely wonderful. It's it's like one year in the life of Churchill, only one year, and it takes place right when the blitz starts. And the research is incredible, and everything comes alive, and it's like uh, not quite like a thriller, but like a really good uh, literary character study, I guess. It doesn't, it, it doesn't, you know, it's nonfiction, but it, it, it almost reads like a novel. He's really good at doing that. At the recent inauguration of President Joe Biden, we were gifted with listening to Amanda Gorman read her poem, The Hill We Climb. President Biden is a lover of Irish poets, often quoting Seamus Heaney and James Joyce. Over the past few years, have you seen a resurgence of people choosing to read more poetry? I had a a poem published right before I was 12 years old in a national magazine. And I lied and said I was 16 because I thought you had to be 16 to get it published. So I have seen all different types of hills and valleys in in poetry and how it works. And uh, the interest in it comes and goes from people that are not obsessed with it, I guess is the word for it. Every once in a while, something happens and a whole bunch of people are suddenly interested in it. And then that kind of goes away for a while. And then suddenly something happens, like maybe Amanda shows up and gets a whole new group of people, young and old, just interested in, yeah, that's what I need to be doing, is I need to be writing some poetry, or I need to be experiencing poetry, or reading some poetry, right? Well, hopefully reading some poetry, because that that is always um, a little bit frustrating in that uh, there are always groups of people that decide that they're poets and they haven't really done much reading and they get up and they start doing poetry and they like uh, a little bit of attention and they're not very good and you know they don't necessarily actually want to read too much poetry or work too hard at it or anything else but like anything you must be committed to it and prepared to do all the work and reading that goes along with being a good writer and speaking of writing, there's a story behind the next poem you are going to read for us. Can you share that story with us, please? Yep. As a poet or a writer, of course, you submit things and get used to getting rejections and all that. And a lot of the places that you submit to have what's called writing guidelines, and they kind of give you a hint of what they're looking for or what they're not looking for. And so there was a place where I was submitting poetry, and they specifically said, we do not want poems that rhyme. We 
aren't interested in them at all. So I saw that I had to write this and submit it. Not a poem that rhymes. We do not want the poems that rhyme. We do not want them anytime. We are so sick of rhyming verse, poems of love, or even worse. If you send us rhyming poem, we'll return it to its home, into white envelope with much haste, or if no stamp, then in the waste. If you want to be in print, then kindly take a little hint. We do not want the poems that rhyme. We do not want them anytime. Oh, but surely you can see what rhyming poems mean to me, how their cadences rise and fall. Creating them keeps me tall. I love the poems that rhyme. I love them most all the time, and I work so hard to write them down. Your rejections make me frown. You think the poems with rhyming have quaint, annoying timing, scribbled by quaint old nerds clutching too tight their precious words. The rhyming poems may be old school, but not all come from older fool. The rules on rhyme poems that you make, I must violate, I must break. I'm not too old nor much too thin. I do not have pale pasty skin. I like Rexroth, Whitman, Sexton too, but no rhymes ever would make me blue. It's rhyming poems I want to see, sing-song ditties created by me. They must dissolve your dirty look, get published in your brand new book. Cheeky, but fun. And did they publish it? They didn't, but it's been published several times. Well, Chris, thank you so much for being on the show and for the poetry readings. Thank you very much. Thanks for what you're doing. Take care. Bye-bye. From bookshop to author. Adrian Ross Scanlon's nature writing, personal essays, and other creative nonfiction have appeared in The Fourth River, Pilgrimage, Under the Sun, City Creatures, the American Nature Writing Anthologies, For the Love of Orcas, and other anthologies and journals. She is the recipient of both an Artist Trust Literature Fellowship and a Seattle Arts Commission Literary Award, and her essay, Salvage, was recognized as notable in Best American Science and Nature Writing 2002. Her narrative nonfiction book, Turning Homeward, Restoring Hope and Nature in the Urban Wild, was a Washington State Book Award finalist in 2017. Hi, Adrian, and welcome to the show. Hi, Mandy. Thanks very much for having me here. You are an author, developmental editor, and a volunteer and spokesperson for All Things Nature. Which came first? Well, I can definitively say that being a developmental editor came last. And what came first was wanting to be a writer. I have wanted to be a writer probably from the time that I learned how to read. I have always loved walking into a room that has a lot of books. Um, If I'm traveling someplace, I want to know where the libraries are and the bookstores are. But being a writer is a little bit different from being an author. Writers do the creative work. Authors take that work, take their beautiful work to the next stage, and they put it out in front of the world. They get it published. So when I'm a writer and an author, I create. When I'm a developmental editor, I get to help other writers go through the process that they need to go through to bring their work out into the world. Some of my earliest and probably most most common writing and publications comes from my engagement with the natural world. Uh, I have been a citizen scientist. I've been a salmon monitor on local streams. I've weeded out invasive flora. I've planted native trees. I've been a docent and a tour guide at a wolf sanctuary and a local zoo and a whole bunch of other stuff I can't even remember. And I've written about most of that. So I'd say that my life as a writer and my life in the natural world are definitely intertwined. And Mandy, um, I really appreciate the compliment. I truly do. But I'd never claim to be a spokesperson for all things wild. There is so much more that I do not know than I do. And I'm actually very pleased about that because it means that the world is still an interesting place for me. And I still have a lot of curiosity. So um, I take feeling that I have a lot I still need to learn. That, that That's a blessing. I think of myself as someone who's enchanted with the natural world. And I think of myself as someone who engages with it and understands it and has a relationship with it literally by getting my hands dirty through environmental restoration. Well, your work is appreciated. Now, in the late 1980s, you moved from New York's Hudson Valley, where you worked in a domestic violence program to Seattle. What brought on this relocation and why across the country to Seattle? That's a good question. I was at a major turning point in my life. My father had died. He had died after suffering for decades through a long and quite severe illness. 
I uh, was in my late 20s. I was working in a domestic violence program, working to end violence against women. I was exhausted from this, absolutely flat out exhausted. I was there for three years. And between those two events, I knew I knew in some way that I didn't quite understand. I knew it in my heart. And I think I knew it in my body before I really understood it intellectually. I knew that one time was ending, another time was beginning. And I didn't have any clue about what that new beginning was going to be. I only know I needed to go someplace where I'd never been. And I needed to examine what my life had been up to that point. So I packed up my Toyota Tercel four-wheel drive car, which um, in my not-so-humble opinion was the best car ever created in the world. I cannot believe the Toyota company no longer makes this car. It took me on a solo cross-country road trip from upstate New York to Seattle. Um, I crossed the Mississippi River on my own. I went through the Eisenhower Tunnel at the Continental Divide. It was absolutely wonderful. And I allowed that very frightening and inspiring trip to begin to open me up to a larger understanding of place and self. I arrived in Seattle. I'd never been in Seattle. I knew no one in Seattle. I did not have a job lined up waiting for me in Seattle. It was a complete and total stranger. The only thing that I knew about Seattle is that I had grown up with stories about how rivers in the Pacific Northwest were so thick with salmon that you could walk across their backs to get from one side of the river to the other. I come here, I start hearing something very different. I hear people talking about salmon as if they were talking about an old family ghost, a ghost that appeared and then disappeared. People talked of how they used to seek salmon in creeks and streams that had been long since forced underground for strip malls and parking lots. They talked about how they used to go fishing for salmon and how big the chum and the sockeye and the chinook used to be. Story after story over from told by person after person. I became curious. And one day I let that curiosity take me out on a Sierra Club field trip to see a local salmon stream to figure out what, 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 what all the big fuss was about. We wound up in Cottage Lake Creek in Redmond, which um, is actually the home of the Microsoft Corporation. And Cottage Lake Creek, it did then, it probably still now, does now. It flows alongside horse farms and very upscale housing developments. Um, so what I'd like to do, if I could, Mandy, is read just a little bit from what it was like standing at a footbridge over Cottage Lake Creek. I'd love that. Thank you. Behind the neatly cut lawns and multi-car garages, flowing through a wild riot of sword fern, lichen-encrusted alder, dense stands of salmonberry, and the ubiquitous Himalayan blackberry, was Cottage Lake Creek, spanned by a rain-battered wooden footbridge. Just a few feet below the bridge, the water was thick with pairs of mating sockeye darting back and forth, nipping the tails and fins of intruders to keep them from their precious reds, the gravel sites for their egg nests. The sockeye had lost the sleek, silvery fitness of their ocean phase. Now in mating colors, their bodies were crimson and gleaming in the swift, clear water. The deep green of their heads appeared almost pagan. The males seemed humpbacks, their snouts descended into hooks. Sockeye pressed their bodies close to their mates, their tails quivering in rapid, intense bursts. In the last fierce instincts of their lives, the sockeye lunged for deeper water or slashed at nearby fish. The fins of most of the sockeye were pale and their bodies were dotted with a patchwork of white fungus, which heralded their deaths. I leaned on the footbridge railing. I stared at the sockeye. I had a strange feeling of awe and incomprehension. I was being called to witness, but what was I seeing? The Pacific Northwest, I'd heard it said many times, was anywhere there were salmon. But what were these fish to me? Years later, I would understand that what I saw that day was a creature that would guide me in turning a strange place into a home. Hmm. Another life-changing moment for you. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I've definitely felt that. It, it is quite remarkable. It is quite remarkable. And if someone trying to understand a new place, I mean, salmon make a perfect guide. I don't mean to anthropomorphize them. They have their own their own value as a species. They have their own lives as individual fish. But they, the adults lay their eggs in a certain stream. The mothers protect their their reds, their nests, for a certain period of time, usually a week or two. They die. The fish hatch out. The young fish will hatch out on their own. They stay in their streams, depending on their species, for a few days to a few weeks to a few years. Eventually, they all go downstream to the Pacific. They're there for several years feeding and growing. They come back. And on that return voyage into freshwater, they stop eating. um, And they start living off their fat reserves. And they go back to the same place where they were born, sometimes to the very same spot where they're red was and they mate and they lay their eggs and they die and their death fertilizes the stream so that when their young come up in the spring there's a lot of insect life along the stream bank it's it's really it's a remarkable story of of regeneration and transformation in an essay titled of wolves and mothers you tell a story of taking your then four-year-old daughter to see wolves in an enclosed facility You touch on the importance of sharing the life of wolves with your daughter. What is your history with wolves? Partly literary, partly experiential. I have, I still have a vivid memory of being in my 20s in my apartment in Woodstock before I moved out here. And I was reading um, Barry Lopez's Of Wolves and Man. And I had never read a book like this before in my life. And I remember sitting in my apartment in this not particularly comfortable chair and thinking to myself, this, this was the kind of writing I wanted to do, where I combine science and personal story, I'm combining myth, I'm combining history, and I'm telling a story in a way that makes an otherwise unknown creature, an unknown place, absolutely remarkable. So I consider that book to be one of the touchstones books that I've read in my career as a writer. And of course, the title of Wolves and Mothers, it's a play on of wolves of men. And I think that that book has had this remarkable reaction in a number of people. In terms of my experiences with wolves, when I moved out here, I did have an opportunity to be um, a tour guide for a while, a place called Wolf Haven in uh, Washington, uh, south of Seattle. And um, it was basically a sanctuary for abandoned wolves. Some of them were uh, wolves that had been kept illegally as pets, some of them were from circuses. Some of them were for private deep breeders. Uh, there were a few wolf-dog hybrids, but most of them were wolves. And um, to the best of my knowledge, none of those wolves had ever been in the wild. These were wolves that had always been in human-controlled facilities in one way or another. Um, so I was a tour guide there, and I got to pet them. And when there was a litter of pups And I did get to go into the enclosure with the pups until they were about nine months or so old. You can play with them up to that point. And then at some point, they're always playing. Wolves are always playing, but it starts to matter a great deal who wins the the game at some point. And, you know, for someone who's an amateur like me, that's the time to make a a gracious leave. And then when I was a a tour guide and docent at a a local zoo, they also had wolves there. So I think that... um, you know, I've always enjoyed being with wolves, which is very odd because I'm terrified of dogs, but I'm, I actually am very calm around wolves. Uh, don't ask me why, but this is this is the case. Ariel, of course, was too young to really appreciate any of this. She was, whenever you take a little kid to the zoo, they like the animals that are smaller than they are. They're not really interested in the ones that just look enormous. But I think that what stood out for me about that essay is you know, there's this myth that when you become a mother, you you become very nurturing, you become very soft, you become very nuzzling, and, and certainly that happens. But I think there's a part of it too where there's a real fierceness. I absolutely agree. And I think it's many people have said in many different ways that the the best the best warrior is also a mother, or the best mother is also a warrior, however you want to express that concept. And that was something that I was getting at in in this essay. Let's talk about your book, Turning Homeward, Restoring Hope and Nature in the Urban Wild. When did you begin writing this piece and what inspired you to write it? Well, that's kind of a long story. Um, 
after my experience at Cottage Lake Creek, I started searching out other salmon streams. And sometimes that meant driving north several hours along rain-slicked highways up to the Skagit River, where there would be hundreds of eagles gathering every winter time to eat returning salmon that were coming up to spawn. And sometimes that meant that I'd spend my winter and fall afternoons navigating this, this Byzantine snarl of suburban roads and coals to sack, parking in these weird places, trying to find a foot stream that was going to take me to a local salmon run. So it took a while, it took a couple of years, but I started to realize that I didn't simply live in Seattle, I lived in Puget Sound. And Puget Sound was a place that was woven together by rivers and streams and salmon. If I could, I'd like to take a minute and read from the Ellsworth Creek chapter of the book and talk about that process. An inner geography was taking shape to match the landscape. My first years in Seattle were a disorienting stretch of rain and gray skies from September to May. I waited in vain for the seasons of the Northeast that I knew so well. An autumn of crimson and purple leaves, of brisk winds and bright days that hardened into winter snow, gleaming in starlight, an air so cold it burned my lungs only to warm in time with spring roses unfurling, to gleam and then slowly wither away, as summer's bright sun faded with the coming fall. As I learned to look past Seattle's rain and see the return of the salmon as a sign that a distinct time of year had become, I became aware of other animal migrations marking my new home. Winter was when red-tailed hawks perched atop highway street lamps, Spring was when the turtles called red-eared sliders emerged from brumation, which is, that's akin to hibernation, and sundown logs along the shores of Seattle's parks. It felt like an old-fashioned way of learning about a place, as if I had entered my new home through the back door. So I had more and more of these backdoor explorations, and that led from exploring to actually engaging and I started to learn a little bit more deeply about where I was by actually getting my hands into this place. I started reading invasive flora, Himalayan blackberry, English ivy, a whole bunch of other stuff at Ham Creek. I didn't know where Ham Creek was. Well, it turned out it was a creek off the Duwamish River. Where was the Duwamish River? I mean, this was, I, I was totally clueless. Um, I started monitoring salmon runs at creeks that I didn't even know I had previously knew existed. Ham Creek, Bear Creek, Longfellow Creek. What were these places to me? And I'm guessing you were taking notes continually. Yes. I started writing about what I was seeing, what I was doing, um, what I was questioning about what home meant and what my place in it was, what I was learning. Um, Part of how I come to understand is by taking the time to ask a question, to write about it, to realize there's a deeper question, and then to start writing from there. This is just the way I think, Mandy. I, I learn about myself from writing. I learn about my world from writing. I think that's probably why most writers write. Whether it's fiction or nonfiction, it's a way to turn inward, a way to find answers. And for you, a way to turn home, to find home. Turning homeward was a long, slow process of those experiences, those questions, those answers, those new questions about place, about home, and about commitment. And I tried to make it, I tried to put a lot of science into the book, but I also tried to make it a personal story because I was hoping that it would inspire other people to think about and experience their own stories and their own engagement with the place where they live. And also to remind readers that everything is connected, whether we live in an urban development or in the country. Nature is everywhere, and we need to remember that and respect it. You do. And I think, um, and luckily so, there's been a real fracture in what used to be the American way of thinking about nature. Nature was out there. Nature was out in the wild. Nature was in these pristine places. And we are here in our cities and suburbs away from nature. Well, I don't know, I I think I can imagine that LA in some ways is a lot very similar to where I live in that it's probably loaded with coyotes. Yes, coyotes, mountain lions, raccoons, possums. 
There have even been fox sightings on the beach in Manhattan Beach. For multiple times a week, you know, I'll get my digest from next door coming into my inbox and it's coyote here, coyote there, watch your pets, watch your pets. There are a lot of animals that are able to live alongside us and they're wild animals. And some of them are generalists like us, coyotes are. So they can kind of, they can kind of fit in alongside us. There's a lot of salmon streams that are running through urban and suburban areas. And in the process of restoring them, people have realized how toxic stormwater is to local creeks, how it poisons the creeks, literally. And for coho salmon, at least, they they die before they have a chance to mate when they come back upstream. Um, They're just so poisoned by these creeks. But there's a solution. I mean, you can put a rain garden into your backyard. And a rain garden is simply a garden it's a garden and it's piping and it's designed to catch the rain before it hits the street, before it becomes stormwater. It catches the rain and it flows it into the ground. So it never becomes stormwater, never pollutes the streams. This is something that people can do in their backyards. Adrian, where I live, I dream of water. I dream of rain coming so I can have enough stored to feed my vegetable garden. Heather Hamilton of the Hood Canal Salmon Enhancement Group reviewed Turning Homeward and quoted the following phrase from page 55. No matter the roads I took or the streams I explored, it was everywhere to see, this broken world, full of lost spaces, filling its scars with beauty, bursting not with life that was, but with what could still be. Do you remember where you were when that phrase came to you? It is an exquisite collection of words. I was really lucky in that I was by Ellsworth Creek. Ellsworth Creek is a remarkable place, and what I've written about it barely, hardly does it justice. Ellsworth Creek flows through about 300-some-odd acres of old-growth forest in western Washington. So these are the traditional forests that you would have seen in the Pacific Northwest two, three, four hundred years ago. Some parts of that watershed has been logged and logged repeatedly. Some parts of it are pristine, and they have there are stands of Sitka spruce, western red cedar, other conifers that are probably centuries old. Um, in the early 2000s, the Nature Conservancy purchased the watershed around Ellsworth Creek, the 300-some-odd acres. And to the best of my knowledge, it was one of the first times that the Nature Conservancy moved from protecting a pristine place to protecting a place that was part pristine and part damaged, with the idea being that they wanted to see what they could learn about restoring a place, getting as much of that those forests back as they possibly could from the logged areas. I was very lucky. Um, I finagled a trip to see it in the early 2000s when the Nature Conservancy was looking for writers to go down and spread the news. They had this massive fundraising drive going on. So I wound up carpooling with some of their staff down U.S. Highway 101, past Arctic, past Aberdeen, past the tree towns of Southwest Washington, past truck after truck after truck, traveling out loaded with logs from the Whirlpool Hills. In that part of the world and in much of the Pacific Northwest, trees, woods, logs, that has been the point of the realm. That has been the economy, that has been the social structure, that has been the life of that area. Roughly or someplace in Willapa Bay, we left the highway, we wound up going onto a one-lane dirt road. There were rocks denting the cars. When we got out at this old logging road, um, I remember I stepped out of the car and I looked down at my feet and there was actually an ankle-high forest of conifers growing up in the wheel, the wheel ruts on this dirt road. And next to that was, were tire tracks that were cutting through this smashed bunch of bear scat. And this is not something you see in Seattle, necessarily. <laughs> so we found a foot trail. We went down this boot cut staircase into kind of a, a muddy bank. And from there, we entered what I can only call a green world. There were cedars there that were probably 800 years old, maybe older. There were hemlocks that were huge. I mean, I don't know another word to describe this. Huge. and so old that they were interlaced together and there was Ellsworth Creek with a chum salmon run coming upstream, cutting and curling through this watershed, this forest. There were trenches that were left from logging 
um, these kind of the straight lines. You could still see them carved into the ground, but um, they were now overgrown with sword fern, with deer fern, with salal. There were tree stumps, again, left from logging, that were now lost log, uh, nurse logs for wood sorrel, for seedlings, a spruce, red huckleberry, hemlock, what have you. Nature is very resilient and human nature is very resilient. None of that justifies past harms in any way. But for me, um, to see a place like Ellsworth Creek, it was eye-opening to see how a place could carry all the scars of the past and still have the possibilities of the future. So it was it, that, that, and that really, it's, it was a turning point in the book and it was a turning point for me because it started my shifting and thinking from, I, I'm not quite sure repair to restoration, but from the sense of trying to restore the past and said, what's possible in the future? Given all these harms that have occurred, what can we still do? I'm reminded of the phrase, the beauty of decay, and how quickly nature heals. For example, we went through the Thomas fire here a couple of years back now, and it was horrendous having to evacuate so quickly and and seeing the destruction that happened around us so quickly. It was terrifying. A few months later, we went hiking and we knew that there were probably, you know, carcasses of dead animals that hadn't made it out and all the trees would be burnt. But within a couple of months, there were already little shoots coming out of the ground and it didn't take long and nature was healing herself. New trees were pushing through where others had died. And speaking of which, let's talk about your next book, which is about planting 1,000 trees. And this topic actually always brings a smile to my face because when I was younger, I think I was in probably the equivalent of middle school in Australia, and the summer holidays were coming up and my father suggested that we could bring friends and go camping up at this property that the family owned, which was basically just wild bush. Well, we actually all thought this sounded great because obviously we could get up to some mischief. (laughs) So we got some friends together and we all went up there with dad and mom and uh, only to find out that dad had bought 2,000 little pine tree saplings. And that was what we had to do. We spent our whole holidays planting these 2,000 trees. (laughs) (laughs) So, of course, I'd love to hear your planting 1,000 trees in Western Washington story. So basically, I, I made a promise to plant 1,000 trees in Western Washington, and my thought is to make a book, my second book, be about that. And it all started because one day, a few years ago, one, um, what I thought was just an ordinary day, just any old day, nothing special at all. I asked my daughter, who was then, or probably actually probably closer to five or six at the time, I asked her if she wanted to help me plant a tree and make the woods prettier. And she said, no. She did not want to go into the woods. She did not like trees, and she did not want to plant one ever. I was rather stunned by this, as you can imagine. <laughs> and I, and I, my first coherent thought, and it took a while to get to that point, but my first coherent thought was, well, this blankety-blank kid won't plant one tree, I'll plant a thousand. And I thought about it for a few days later, and I thought, oh, gee, you know, how hard can it be to plant a tree? Sounds like a good idea. Why don't I do that? She's 12 now, and she has kept largely to that decision, doesn't like trees, doesn't want to plant them. I've kept to my decision. Um, As of last weekend, I am at slightly over 300 pieces of flora planted in local parks and restoration sites. Roughly about, I think about three quarters by now are trees, and the rest are shrubs, understory plants, um, ferns stuff like that. Um, please don't ask me any tough questions about trees. I'm still learning about trees. I'm still, still trying to figure out how to identify them. I won't. I just learned how to plant a vegetable garden this year, so you won't get any questions from me. <laughs> it is slowly dawning on me that this will probably take many more years to get 1,000. And also that I'm not really planting trees. I'm planting forests. And that work actually supports a lot of the salmon restoration work I've done over the years, whether it's because forests filter out stormwater or because they create habitat. I am now having 
the completely unexpected joy of going to places where years earlier I had helped pull out English ivy and Himalayan blackberry and then with other volunteers had helped plant native trees. And I go back to these places now and these seedlings are now some pretty nice looking Western red cedars and Douglas firs and snowberries and other thriving plants. So this project unexpectedly is taking me from repair here and there, now and again, this place, that place, and I'm starting to just begin to understand a more sustained and more intimate connection with where I live. As for the book in progress, I had originally envisioned it as being a pretty simple book to write about the, the science and the practice of urban and suburban reforestation and how important it is and everything else. And I spent most of the most of this year so far working on free rights for it and drafting out chapters, things like that. As I read over my free rights and I realize that I have been writing the roughest of drafts through a global pandemic, through massive wildfires in the United States. And I mean, we, I think we can all still remember the wildfires that were decimating Australia about a year ago. The unexpected deaths of two people who had a very important role in my life I find that I'm writing a lot about about hope, about legacy, and also, um, in the words of the late uh, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, writing about repairing the past by securing the future. And very much to my surprise, or maybe I shouldn't be surprised by this, I'm starting to write quite a bit about joy. There is a simple and unexpected joy of taking a vine maple taking a cascara out of a planting container, freeing the root ball, placing that true seedling in the ground, putting soil around the roots, pressing down to make sure it's in a secure bed, mulching it, watering it, and walking away because there's another tree to be planted in another place. And all the while knowing that not all of these trees are going to make it, they're not all going to survive, but many will and enough will and knowing that there's going to be a forest here and a beautiful world here with hard work, with scientific knowledge, with stubbornness, there's a real joy in that. It's not a huge bouncing joy. It's a quiet joy, but it's joy. And it's also, it's a very hopeful feeling too. I'd like to ask you about another quote from your book. When I was young, I wanted to save the world. I thought I could do that by organizing and boycotting and marching and leafleting and demonstrating against the big issues, nuclear proliferation, violence against women, so many other avoidable injustices of our time. I value that activism for what it changed in other people's lives and for what I learned from it. I trust it made a difference, however slight. I would do it again if necessary. Now that I'm older, I still want to save the world. But time is costly, passion more so. I no longer want to determine my actions and define my life by what I oppose. I want to act and live here in this world with what I love, simply and solely because I am coming to love it. End of quote. In the first episode of the Bookshop podcast, I interviewed author and adventurer Dan Malloy. And he said something similar, that it's important to him to live what he believes to be a healthy life and to show others by doing. Is this how you feel? I, I think it is. I think it is. Um, I'd like to thank you for asking about that. It's, that's actually one of my, what, that chapter is one of the favorite, my favorite chapters in the book. And I think that the shift that I'm expressing from protest to something more positive I think that's a shift that occurs for many people. Um, when I was young, I felt very disconnected from society. I didn't know who I was. I had this idea of who I was supposed to be, but then there was this other person who I really was, and there, were, there was something of a difference there. So there was this disconnect, and I think that that's very common for many people, particularly young people who gravitate towards social change. And unfortunately, when, we, when I think about this on a larger level, as a nation, as a society, we've gotten real, really good at saying what's wrong, what's not working. We've gotten really good at talking about where our American idealism, which to me has always been part of the American character, this sense of idealism, 
it hasn't taken us as far as we'd like to go. I think it's very easy to oppose something, but it's really hard. It takes time. It takes commitment. It takes a willingness to experiment, a willingness to fail. Um, it takes love to build something new. Somewhere in one of my essays, I wrote that um, changing the world is like doing the housework. There's always dust building up in the corner. There's always another shirt being tossed onto the floor. There's always something that needs to be fixed and repaired and reimagined, remade. And I think probably there always will be. I think it is absolutely fabulous and absolutely great that there are people in the world who become angry enough that they turn that anger into lawsuits. They turn it into lobbying for new laws. They turn it into boycotts or protests or any kind of necessary direct action. Mazel tov, more power to them. But for me personally, I need to know that my actions are grounded in what I love. I mean, it sounds very trite. It sounds kind of silly. It sounds cliched. But I just think that it's true that love for a place, a community, a species, a vision of fairness, it's love. It's that positive motivation that's going to carry us through the decades, the lifetimes that's going to be required for positive change. And the older that I get, the more I want to be creating, the more I want to be planting trees and writing books and reading books and leaving a legacy for the future. It's a future that I'd like to make real, a future that one day maybe people will be reading about. Thank you so much, Adrienne, for being with us today and sharing thoughts about the world and your writing and your books. And thank you for all you're doing. The work that you're doing, Mandy. Bye-bye. And thank you for listening. Remember, buy local, read global, support your local indie bookshop. I'll see you around the corner. For updates about the show, make sure to follow me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Mandy Jackson Beverly.